everyone. I'm Stu, your co-host, and I'm here with Patty, the paranormalist. And Patty's got uh, an interesting episode lined up for us today. And I don't know every, in fact, I, I know very few details about it. So Patty is going to uh, surprise all of us. And we'll we'll move on from here. Well, the details were not known by you because I asked and you said, let it be a surprise. That's so true. it is. That's true. So people have been re reaching out um, both um, from the website and also um, people messaging me, um, messaging me and saying things that they are interested in and what have you. But there were two that stood out and I wanted to share them because um, I thought they were fascinating and both of them are thought provoking and they will... Uh, one of them in particular is um, by somebody who's a little sense is who is sensitive herself. She considers herself sensitive, and um, she had an event that occurred to her. And I want to set the stage. So she was ghost hunting, and she had gone on a paid event to um, the USS North Carolina. It's in, located in Wilmington, and. Um, was going to get to ghost hunt on that ship so there'll be um, little bits and pieces of it that I'll fill in because it's a fairly long set of texts but the gist of it is fascinating to me so she said that she went on this overnight ghost hunt um, on the battleship and the battleship served during World War II in the Pacific Theater. It had taken only one hit, and that was from a Japanese torpedo. The torpedo had hit approximately three to four decks below the main deck, but the, the blast physically affected multiple decks. So one of the decks, um, which was the, where the head, um, which is the bathroom and the shower, um, was... The Navy reported five soldiers were killed in that area. Now, they weren't killed by the blast, according to this. They were basically sealed in that section of the boat so that the rest of the boat wouldn't flood and left there. And they had to do that to keep the water from spreading throughout the whole ship. Um, so they were locked in. I can't imagine dying like this. It's just horrendous. And during the tour... She was, you know, in a group that went in there. She was one of the last ones taken to the torpedo room. They were allowed to walk around. Um, and she said that whichever way you go in the passageway, you're up, you'd be up to your hips. Um, and, um, or they were, for me anyway, that she felt like she was walking through something. Um, and she said, I'm vertically challenged, meaning she's not very tall. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And um, they were designed that way to give people more time to escape. So everything's really narrow and it kind of guides you in a certain direction. And she gets to the watertight door. She goes through it. She's one of the last ones coming out of the room. She rejoins her group. And she said that there was, she sort of was sitting aside from everybody else because all that energy was just a little overwhelming to her. And... They were doing the thing you see with flashlights on TV, you know, where you turn the flashlights off and what have you. And they were all sitting in the dark when um, she said she noticed a solid dark mask in, mass in front of her. And she leaned to the right to, and then to the left to try to look around it. And that's when she started to hear the yelling and the banging from the direction of where the torpedo room was, the area where the seal they were sealed up. 
she would hear she was hearing voices screaming let us out open the doors and they were banging on the walls with their fists it was then she said she was shown a sailor's view of him banging and scratching on the door so basically she was looking through his eyes and i've had that event happen and it's a very unnerving event when suddenly you're seeing through somebody else's eyes and she said she, she was he was banging on the door and scratching at the door he was literally trying to claw his way through the iron door and was doing it so aggressively his fingernails were peeling off the nail bed I could hear them screaming and crying to see their family, their girlfriends, their wives. Um, this one he, she was looking through the eyes of, the woman he was thinking of wasn't his wife yet, but would have been had he survived. And um, she said, I was also shown when the water was filling the entire section and how they had barely had enough room above the water to squeeze their mouth and nose to get their last breaths of air. I was shown and told how they all knew that they were going to die, to drown. I had spoken all I um, all, and I just described to my, uh, that she had just described to the group she was with, and a couple others in the group said that they had been hearing faint yelling too. So she's talking about all of this, about the fear of knowing that death was coming, that she was overwhelmed by their emotions. And one of the things about being sensitive, I don't talk a lot about it, but I am. And um, I do not do it for a living because I don't find it comfortable. Um, but you can, and it's really odd to experience somebody else's moments of death, to experience their fear or their pain or their, um, longing for somebody it's really difficult to look through their eyes and experience it as though you're them because your brain's trying to make sense of it on two different levels at the same time you know academically this isn't happening to you but it is happening to you in every way you're sobbing you're you're scared your heart rate's you know gone up so this is the kind of feeling she was having and because I'm an old chick these days and she's not, um, you know, I've had a lot of those experiences and I learned how to cross people over because the one thing that I find tragic about a haunting is that most of the time, there are different types of hauntings, I should say, but most of the time the haunting doesn't have to happen. Now I know I love a ghost story probably better than most people, but the truth of the matter is when I'm given the opportunity, I end the ghost story. And I do that because out of human compassion, I wouldn't want to leave another soul in that position. Who would? And there is a process you can go through to help that person to escape that. Imagine um, being on the battlefield in Gettysburg, which is a, a good example, and you're reliving a horrible death over and over. There are places in Gettysburg where those soldiers are on the battlefield crying for water. They're dead. But that intense moment when they were thirsty and dying is still there and they're screaming out for water 150 some years later. It's horrendous and not necessary. And so I had said to this young lady, her name is Erin, that I had said to her, I wanted to share this particular post she sent to me and then to talk a little bit about how to cross people over. So if you're sensitive, and sometimes even if you're not, you can cross people over. 
basically what I have come to understand through a lifetime of doing this is that a lot of people are afraid to take that next step because of judgment or they're confused because they got lost in those moments of fear and pain that brought them to the moment of death. There are people who are here because they have chosen to stay. If you do any reading, um, serious reading on life after life, people who've died and come back, they'll talk about the tunnel of light and that peace and love and warmth at the, at the light. But they also talk about these dark beings along the sides of the tunnel wall. I believe those are the spirits of people who were afraid for one reason or another to cross. I believe we all do have to cross at some point, but they're not ready to walk forward. And God is a gentleman, so he's giving them time to make this transition. For him, time is relative. I mean, what does it matter? He is God. So if it takes them a little while to step through, then it takes a little while for them to step through. And to him, 150 years is probably not even a day. So what I have come to understand is that you have to talk to these people. Um, my job as a counselor kind of helps me a little bit. You have to counsel them. And I will talk to them and I will speak to them. I've had soldiers say to me things like, I can't go over because I stole the water canteen from a dying man. I killed somebody and God said not to kill. And so I would say to that person, sweetheart, do you remember the Bible story of David? Yes. David was a warrior king and he was also God's chosen. We don't have to be perfect. And David killed people, sometimes not even justly, like he did with Bathsheba's husband, whom he murdered, literally sent in front of the battle to be murdered. And yet God still loved him. What makes you think God won't love you? You need to go to find your peace, to find your family. I usually say a little prayer around that point. And if it's something else, you know, um, I talk to them and rationalize with them. They're not thinking straight. They've got a distorted cognitive process going on based upon the emotion of that time. And then I, I will tell them, you know, do you see a little pinpoint of light? Have you ever seen it? Every one of them but one has said yes over an entire lifetime. And I tell them, if you look at the light for a little while, does it get larger? And they'll say yes. And they're afraid to look at the light. They think it's going to swallow them up and take them and they're not ready. So they've avoided looking at the light. So what I tell them is they need to just look at the light. It's just going to open to the size of a door. It's not going to suck you in. It, that's not how it happens. And then after they get the, the light to the size of a door, I usually say a prayer and I say, you know, dear Lord, send somebody to them that they recognize from life, somebody that they loved. And it's usually a parent or a spouse or a sibling. It has on a couple occasions been a little bit odd. I've had a dog, a school teacher and a mule over a the mule. years. A mule, <laughs> which made right. sense after I understood the whole story. The man was actually a teamster during the Civil War, and he had taken um, a special attachment to this one particular mule, which was basically the thing that kept him from going insane. So he had grown to love it immensely. And um, yeah. makes sense then. Mm -hmm. It makes, yeah, then all of a sudden you're going, the mule doesn't sound crazy anymore. Well, anyhow. 
At that point, I tell them they can stick their hand through just their hand and they can touch the light and put their hand into the light. And I'll say, is it, how do you feel? They usually tell me it's warm and I know it's warm. Now, take your hand out. Your hand is there. At no point do you lose control over yourself. But do you see that person, that loved one at the door, at the window? Do you see them in the light? And they'll say yes. And a lot of times they'll reach out of the light and take, hold their hand out. A lot of times they'll step a little bit through the light and reach out to them. Most of the time they'll go. And at that point, they cross over and they go into the light. And then I say a prayer, God be with you. I don't know what happens. And I tell them that up front if they ask. I don't know what happens beyond the light. I only know that there's nothing good for you here. There's misery and sorrow. And not there's no compassion here for you. I can't help you in any other way. So this is the only gift I can give. And then that fashion, you have to cross them. Now, at the same time I'm doing all of this, I'm also pouring my energy out. They're using my energy. I literally take all the guards down, emotionally and psychically speaking, so that they can pull from my energy. And I'm exhausted when I'm done. But it's worth it. I've had nights I've crossed six or seven people and in a building. I'm elated. I'm exhausted. I'm grateful, and I always say a prayer of thanks when it's over. I say a prayer for their safe journey to whatever it is that they needed to go to. I don't know what happens beyond the light. I'm not God. I've never died and come back. But I do know that it's got to be better than living through your death endlessly for eternity. That's a lot to process, at least from my side of the chair. You heard my side of the screen. That's... Uh... Yeah, it's quite, quite interesting, and I, I think our listeners are going to really enjoy this. I hope so. I mean, it's, it's not that, you're, that anybody has to be special to do this in any way. It is about loving. I can't even express it strongly enough. The energy you're pouring out to them is straight love. You have to love somebody enough, some stranger enough that you're willing to sacrifice your own energy to get them there. And it's just because they're unwilling, they're frightened. And it's really important that you give them that peace of mind and that love um, as they're going through this process. And I always pray that if somebody I love is in that position someday, that there will be somebody come along and offer them the same peace and love so that they can find the peace of their life. It, it just um, is to me massively sad that people are, their souls are struggling for no good reason because they couldn't make that next step. They couldn't make that mental leap or shame, fear, and pain have held them there. It's a like, really, yeah, it's I'm an speechless. easy process. It's, it's an easy <laughs> process once you've done it a couple of times. It's a very loving process, mm -hmm. very intimate with that spirit for just those few moments and then they're gone. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, but if people wonder how that works, that's how it works. And I have to tell you that in my lifetime, anybody who's known me will, will be able to validate this. I don't charge for a single thing I do ever, whether it's doing a reading for somebody who's in great pain. I only do them if somebody's struggling immensely. Um, or 
crossing people over, that it, if you have that gift and you're able to do this, it is to me a sin to charge for that, to charge to give people peace. That's my personal viewpoint on it. So I do it when I have the opportunities. Um, as I said, I've only ever had one opportunity to, one time I've asked somebody about, do you see the light? And they told me no. It was a very bizarre experience. And because it was unique, I'm going to pass this story on and then move on to our second um, person's comments. So I was in um, Virginia um, and in a town where there had been a huge civil war battle. And I was down at the water. So apparently the battle had worked its way across the river and up into the town and then back across the rivers, how this particular battle ebbed and flowed. And I was down near the water with uh, my dear friend Carol Nesbitt, and we were we encountered a spirit of a man, and he was holding a little black pouch that was tied around his neck, like a little money pouch or jewelry pouch. And he seemed very surprised that I could see him, and I I stopped to talk to him to see why he was there, and he said, um, "I got to get this to my family." And I said, what is in it? And he didn't give me words. Sometimes they'll do downloads of pictures and just kind of, it's almost like a computer download where it just automatically you know what's going on. So basically what he did was he explained to me that he had stolen what was in this pouch, which was jewelry and money, um, from somebody outside of this town where he had basically raided them and stolen their goods. And he had seen it as justifiable because he knew his family was going to need the money. And so he was going to get it to his family. And he was adamant about this. So I said to him, your family's not here anymore. 150 years has gone by. They don't need what's in the pouch. It will do them no good. You need to go find your family. And I asked him if he saw the light, and he said no. And I was like, you've never seen a pinpoint of light that grows when you look at it. He said no. And the whole time, he's got his hand clenched on this pouch. Like, he won't let go of it. And all of a sudden, in my head, I heard this little voice, and it whispered, take the pouch off. So I said to him, take the pouch off. Take the money bag off. And he said, I can't. i got to get it to my family. And I said, take it off. It will do you no good. It's money. It's jewelry. It's physical stuff that you can't use at this place where you're at now, where you're going to. And it took me about 10 minutes, but I talked him into taking it off. And as soon as he took it off and dropped it on the ground, it faded away before it ever hit the ground. Because it was just a construct of his desire. It didn't actually exist. And all of a sudden, he started to weep. And he said, I see a light. And I said, is it small? And he says, yes, but it's growing. It's the size of a doorknob. And I told him to keep watching it. And Carol and I crossed him over. And I realized that the one thing, the only thing that holds us here so tightly that we can't even see the hope of salvation, of 
getting away from our, our death pain is greed. Who knew it was that powerful? That's why it's one of the seven deadly sins. Yeah. It is, but I've never met anybody who had held on to anything as tightly as that man held on to that pouch. So tightly, he couldn't even see salvation. He couldn't see hope. It was instructive to me that we need to let go of things because things don't matter. You can't, the old saying, you can't take it with you, you know? And it, it's true in so many ways. You can't take it with you. Spiritually, you can't take it with you. When you go wherever you go beyond that light, I've never seen anybody get a chest of gold pushed through that light. I've never seen anybody have a, you know, a great big wardrobe full of clothes pushed through the light. People come to the light. Things that are loved, dogs, the mule, came to the light. All that really counts in life is your love, not the stuff. And it's instructive on so many levels. I, I feel blessed that God allowed me that experience. Quite, quite powerful. Yeah. It changes the way you think about things. Like I look at stuff and I go, it's just stuff. I buy things that please me in my spirit, not that are expensive. And I don't buy a lot anymore because I don't need a lot anymore. The older I get, the more I simplify things over and over and over, refining it until I get to the place where I'm not putting too much value on objects. Actually, to be honest with you, the laptop that we talk on every time we talk, right. it's got to be about nine years old. <laughs> <laughs> so I obviously don't put a lot of value on things, um, monetarily speaking. Money isn't, I have to have it to live, I get that. Because we have to take care of the physical part of us. But we should probably put a little more time and energy into our spiritual part. And now I'm off my soapbox. Sorry about that, everybody. But oh, that's right. what I learned from that experience was that money held him here. The love of money held him here. That begs me to ask, though, was it really the love of money or was it the love of his family that he needed? He felt the compelling need to take that 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 uh, that money that he stole to give to his family, to assist his family. I mean, that, how, how is that any different than a poor child stealing food to give to his family? It's not on, in the on scope the, of it, yeah. Yeah, it's not on the physical level. It's whenever you can't let it go in the spiritual level. Um, on the physical level, I get it. I would get somebody stealing food to feed their children. I would get all of that. Um, but I think he had an intrinsic guilt about stealing it in the first place. And he went against his own better nature. But I think that when you're not willing to drop it so you can cross over. And even, you know, it even took me 10, 15 minutes after I told him, your family has passed. They don't need this anymore. But he had held that thought for so long. It was a struggle to let it go. Well, think about that. Having a singular thought for 150 years. Yeah. That's going to get ingrained in you if it's going to be there that long. Yeah. It, it is. It's it's quite a, um, 
a, a testament to, you know, his focus on it. But on the other hand, it was when he laid it down that he found his peace. And by the way, it was his wife who came for him. I, will, oh, I remember the look on his face when he said her name. And I mm -hmm. saw her smiling and I was like, finally, good for you. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about that and answer Aaron's question because it was a great question about how to cross people over and to to um, tell the story because you have to be creative and sometimes you just got to live with your intuition and know, like with him, I just knew from that voice and still voice in my head that said, drop the bag, you know, drop that pouch. So it's not cut and dry. You don't have to burn candles. You don't have to do a thousand different things. You have to love. And that's really the best answer there is, at least in what my life experience has been. And that's all I can speak to. So the second person who had sent me a, a question was um, Madison. Now, Madison goes way back to the way, way, way back machine to the beginning years ago. And um, I'm grateful and um, fortunate enough to be able to still get to talk to Madison. So she stuck by us a long time. And um, she asked me a question about, because I do a lot of mental health, if, um, you know, what happens if somebody has mental health problems and they're still seeing stuff? What happens to them? And the answer to the question is complicated because it depends in part on the mental health professional they're dealing with. So um, I believe I told you a story. I, I don't know if, if um, I've told it publicly recently, but um, I had a, a job working in a mental health facility, an outpatient facility, and one of the therapists came to me one day and was telling me about a patient who was also, I shared with him um, for different things that they needed to have done. And that this patient claimed that the apartment he was living in was haunted, that his bedroom specifically was haunted, that there was a face that, and arms that would come out of the wall and reach out toward him and it terrified him. He was a young man in his early 20s and he was living there with his mother. He did have some um, mental health issues. Nothing, it wasn't schizophrenia or any of that stuff. It was just um, depression and anxiety, things like that. And I said to the therapist, I said, what do you think? And he handed me a file and it was about another young man and his mom who had lived in an apartment and had seen the same thing. And then he said to me, it's the same apartment. So he had had two clients five years apart who had had the same experience. Both young men, both stayed in that same bedroom who saw the same thing, both of whom had a mental health problem, depression, anxiety. Um, and both of them had been brought in for treatment because their family members were afraid, <clears throat> excuse me, that their mental health was deteriorating because of what they saw. Both of them, by the way, once they left that apartment, were fine. So mm -hmm. in large part, it has a lot to do with who your mental health provider is. There's a place called Hillview in Western Pennsylvania it was a nursing home. And there was a there's a very popular story out there about an old woman who had um, Alzheimer's. And she would talk about a little boy in her room in old timey clothes and she would talk to him. Well, now if anybody's ever done any work with Alzheimer's patients and I have, 
they often talk to dead loved ones as though they're still there and to strangers that they've created in their mind. It's a, it's a sad, slippery slope. But it happens. And the nursing staff at the facility were brushing it off and, you know, making light of the story because of that. Fast forward about seven years, they put another patient into the same room. She was in the beginning of Alzheimer's, and she started talking about the same little boy, same name, <clears throat> same type of clothing, same hair color. And the interesting thing that she kept saying, is, which was also something the other lady had said, was, he's so cold, get him a sweater. Subsequently, they would learn that the three of the, <clears throat> I apologize, um, three of the first people to ever go into this facility when it was a poorhouse prior to, many years prior to it becoming a nursing home, were three children who had stayed in that room, two boys and a little girl, and the one little boy died of pneumonia because the building was so badly heated at the time, he caught a chill and died. And he's still there. And he's still there, apparently. Yeah, there's um, lots of ghost stories about him now. But um, other people, if they're if they're not willing to be open-minded to it, they, you know, they'll just mark it off as mental health issues. But there are some really good um, resources. M. Scott Peck, who was a psychologist, wrote a book um, on the subject. Um, Dr. Edith Fury, also a psychologist, wrote a book on the subject, both of whom um, are board-certified psychiatrists, and um, they had experiences in the paranormal that began to make them open up and realize that not every mental health issue is a mental health issue. Sometimes they're physical, or they're, um, I should say, they're spectral issues. Um, Dr. Edith Fury tells the story um, of a woman who came to her who was a very nice lady. She was a housewife and mother, and she had a great life, you know, a normal life. And then all of a sudden, she began to, they moved into a new home, and she began to experience blackouts. And she would wake up in other men's beds and into other towns, and she couldn't explain it. She would drink, and she had never drank in her life. This was all contra contrary to who she was. And during a session, Dr. Fury realized that the tone of voice and the timbre of her voice changed at one point, and she wasn't talking to this lady anymore. So she said, who am I talking to? And the, the entity gave his name, and he said, I lived across the street from that house that she moved into, and she's boring, but I want to have a little fun. And her first thought was, um, you know, multiple personalities, which is, you know, DID now. And um, so she begins to pursue it and she asks questions, you know, well, how old are you? What year is it? Um, you know, when did you move into the house? What's your, do you have any, any family? What's your wife's name? Blah, blah, blah. She's madly taking down all these notes. And then she finally says, I need to talk to the lady again, to her, her client again. So she starts talking to the, eventually she convinces him to leave and she talks to the patient. And after the patient leaves, um, she's left in a quandary. I've worked with multiple personalities and I have to tell you, they don't, 
they don't have entire whole families. They, they are actually splinters of a, of, of a person's psyche. So they represent most of the time a protector or the innocence or different aspects of trauma that have happened to that person. But they don't have an entire life story. They're not a real human being. You can't go look them up in a, a genealogical file somewhere because they don't exist except in that person's mind. They are a physical representation of a trait or an event. And that's how their mind is coping with whatever it was they had to cope with. So after this lady leaves, Dr. Fury begins to do some research and she'll, she talks in the story about she found out that there was a man by that name who had a wife by that name who lived in the house at that time and who died in that house across the street. She further would do some inquiries um, among people who knew the man because it hadn't been that long, a few years, and they told her he was a drunk, a heavy drinker. He cheated on his wife quite frequently and he was just a, a nasty person overall. He wasn't a pleasant person. So the next time this woman came in to be treated, she deliberately asked to speak to him. And over the series of weeks, again and again, she would speak to him first. And she began to explain to him that he needed to go, that he was destroying this woman's life and he had no right to destroy this woman's life. And you know, you're destroying her children's lives because they're suffering due to her struggling and her and her husband fighting over the drinking and all these different things that are occurring in their lives. And eventually she was able to get him to cross. And at that point, the woman ceased having a mental health issue and she went back to her life. Believe it or not, there are places in Australia and in England where you can go and have psychiatrists or psychologists work with you on such things. In the United States, we don't recognize it very readily, but I highly recommend looking up Dr. Fury's book. It's fascinating reading. It's case histories and it's fascinating reading. So it depends on the person. Um, I don't automatically dismiss a person's story and I don't automatically accept it. I put it down and I wait. I had a patient uh, who was an Alzheimer's patient. She would often talk to her dead mother and father as though she was a little girl and they were there in the room with her. And um, it happened quite frequently because I was with her six hours a day when I, you know, when I was doing treatment. And one day she's talking to this person that I don't see that's supposedly standing where her cedar chest was. It was a big old cedar chest and her family had told me not to open it up and I never had, but I was in her home and I was sitting there um, getting things ready for her, doing notes and stuff so that I could, you know, move forward with our pro uh, the project. And um, she starts talking to this man, Leland, and I knew nothing about her history except she had been married twice. Her sons were to her first husband. I never had heard her husband, her second husband's name. There were no photographs of him. They pretty much had um, scrubbed him out of the place. 
Um, so he didn't, he, there was nothing there to tell me anything about him. So she's talking to Leland and she's like, oh, Leland, I would never let them cremate you. What are you talking about? No, they buried you. And she's getting agitated. So I decide we need to shift gears here. And I get up and I say to the lady, you know, let's go get some lunch in, uh, in the kitchen. So I, she's in a wheelchair. I, t I take her to the kitchen. I get her something to eat and she calms down. Her son comes in to talk to me. And he asked me about his mom, and I said she, she did great all day. She was doing pretty good until this event with this imaginary Leland. And he looks at me like I threw hot water at him, and he goes, what did you say? I said, yeah, she was arguing with this imaginary person, Leland, about not being cremated, that he wasn't cremated, and that she had buried him. And he literally ran out of the room like he was in shock. And he came back about an hour or two later and he kind of came through the garage opening. He's like, Patty, come here, come here. And I went out and he said, tell me exactly what you said happened to mom. And I said the story again. And he sort of sinks down on this, this tire, these tires that are sitting there. And he goes, I called my brother and I called my wife and they're the only two people would know. And I said, what are you talking about? And he's like, you said she was standing there or sitting there talking to the cedar chest, right? And I said, well, to whatever was she thought was at the cedar chest, yes. He's like, her first, our second husband's name was Leland. And she had just been diagnosed with um, Alzheimer's and she was struggling. She was in the hospital at the time he died. He had no real family. She wanted him to have a funeral, but we chose to cremate him and keep the money because we didn't know how much money mom would need. And we lied to her about the funeral. He's in the cedar chest. When she dies, we're going to put him in her casket. What are the odds? Evidently, in this case, 100%. So, <laughs> so I think it just, it, just matter, it, just, it matters who you go to. It matters how open-minded you are. I have to tell you, I, most, not all, but most of the people I've worked with in the field of psychology are more open-minded than you would anticipate because they've seen bizarre things happen before. Not like parents who, whenever they're, young children say you know mom dad i saw this thing and whatever you know, oh you didn't it was just your you know some a piece of bad meat or something like yes that. it's your imagination or you, know, you watched a bad scary movie my mother used to tell me you just watched a scary movie and i'm like no i didn't so no mm -hmm. so you know it, it's just is what it is and i i thought that today we would um just answer a couple of our, our friends who have been listening to us. And um, if you anybody else has any questions, stories they'd like to share, comments, I did ask for permission to use both their names. The second story um, question came from Madison, as I said. And I, again, she's been a long time listener and most appreciated. And um, I'm sure Erin will have new stories to share with us because she seems to be bumping into a lot of this stuff right now. So if anybody else has anything that they want to share, they can reach out to us and they can share as well. And we'll do this again. We'll share the stories, the information. And if I can't answer the question, I will. If I can't, I'll let you know that too. You want to tell them where they can reach out to? I would be more than happy to tell them how. Because I'm okay. terrible at that part. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we have the email address, paranormalist at the paranormalistpodcast.com, and you'll see it right down here scrolling by. 
And then we also have our YouTube channel. Now, not everybody can view us on YouTube. I know we have a lot of audio-only uh, listeners uh, through Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, places like that. Uh, but on, uh, on on YouTube, we are The Paranormalist Podcast. And uh, we also have a Facebook page, The Paranormalist Podcast. And basically, it's a it's a page that links back to the to the to the um, YouTube channel. And, but we would appreciate if you would click that subscribe button, click the little bell, so that you will be notified whenever we publish new content. And uh, in the last week, uh, I think we picked up three new subscribers, which we thank you if you're just now joining us. And um, again, you know, we would really love to hear your stories, as evident by what Patty's told you tonight. You know, and uh, I've done I've done enough talking. You can talk again. <laughs> I keep telling him he needs to talk more. <laughs> I, I told you I only want to open my mouth if I have something to to contribute. Otherwise, I'll just I'll wait. I'll wait for the right time. So, so I just um, you know I hope some everybody will do that. And if you could share the podcast with some friends, we'd appreciate that as well. Um, we're enjoying getting a chance to visit with each and every one of you. We thank you for your time because that really means a lot to us. I agree. Everybody have a good evening. Thank you, Patty. <laughs>